Adyaswa, Agelasan Zoyaha, Yuchiha. Thank you very much, Kara. Uh, appreciate that that introduction. And uh, my name is Dan Wildcat. I am a uh, Yuchi Zoyaha member of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma. And um, I want to uh, recognize uh, what an honor it is here to be in the homeland of the coastal Miwok people. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here and, and the honor of uh, speaking on this issue. And um, the introduction's exactly right. I'm not, uh, this, I, I could never claim uh, intellectual ownership for anything that I'm going to say. Um, and in fact, I could call on probably a half dozen of my uh, uh, colleagues of my brothers from many different nations who could get up and give the same sort of report I'm giving. Um, I think what we're seeing today and what we are experiencing is the recognition that the institutions that we are immersed in, that surround us, whether those be governmental, political, legal, educational, uh, economic, those systems are no longer working. Maybe they never worked or they worked for the wrong end. They are coming apart. They are unraveling. I'm going to suggest to you that if we have an opportunity, an incredible opportunity to improve life on this planet for all living things. And it's time now, I think, for indigenous people to step forward and be the leaders in that change. So I'd like to report out very quickly, this is very similar to a kind of a summary I did at the first North American uh, Rights of Mother Earth uh, convening, which uh, Tom Goldtooth of, of the Indigenous Environmental Network uh, uh, and I partnered with to convene at Haskell Indian Nations University. And it's real good to see a lot of my brothers and sisters who were there to help with the convening. Uh, Kalani Sousa uh, from uh, uh, the Big Island Hawaii. Kalani, thank you for being here. And Bob Goff and, and uh, uh, a lot of our friends from Pachamama and uh, the different organizations that helped put that together. So before I go through this enumeration, let me let just make something very clear. Let's begin with the, be with the beginning, with the foundation. If we're going to discuss the rights of Mother Earth, we're going to begin from a position, a foundation that is non-negotiable and non-debatable. And we cannot move, we will not move off this foundation. And that is, as much as it might make some of our Western allies, some of our colleagues in the institutions of law, politics, economics, government, as much as it might make them uneasy and a little bit exasperated, we are going to begin from the position that this planet and the life on it constitutes a spiritual universe, a spiritual dimension. 
In fact, I like to quote uh, my elder, um, Dr. Henrietta Mann. Some of you I know in this room have had the opportunity to hear Dr. Mann speak, uh, eloquent, a Cheyenne elder. And um, I heard her tell our students one time at Haskell Indian Nations University, and I've always thought about this. She says, here's one of the things you have to understand. She says, within our traditions, we understand that we are born spiritual beings. We come into this world spiritual beings. Our struggle is to find out how to become competent human beings. We're all working on that. What does it mean to be competent human beings? So let's go through the, the, these sort of seven things I believe we must do in order to protect the rights of Mother Earth. And again, these aren't my ideas. These come from many people like Warren Lyons and, and Dr. Henry Edaman and, and Oscar Coagley. And I don't want to start going through the names. I, 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 we, I'd be here the rest of my presentation just going through the names of the people who've been kind and generous with me. The first principle, I think um, my friend and mentor, Vine Deloria, shaped up, stated the best, and that is that we might think of our situation on the planet as follows. The powers of the places where we become unique peoples with specific cultures, languages, customs, habits, behaviors, material culture. This powers of place yield unique personalities. He called it Power plus place equals personality. I think we need to recognize that the most important thing that we have to disabuse ourselves of in the modern world is this invidious distinction, this false dichotomy between nature and culture. If we can do that, there's great hope. Power plus place equals personality. Not just individual personalities, personalities of peoples, unique cultures. Which leads, obviously, to the second principle. I wish Dennis Martinez were here. He's one of our, our, our great thinkers. Give him uh, honor, and again, he, he came up with the word to describe this. He talks about, uh, you know, this eco-cultural restoration. And the second principle is that we must never allow ourselves again to ever entertain discussions of cultural diversity on this planet unless we're going to link that explicitly to the biological and ecological diversity of the planet because that is what gave us these unique cultures on the planet. And to the extent that we continue down the path of acting as if there's a one-size-fits-all cultural or technological solution to the planet, we are going to continue to destroy the diversity of this planet. And it's a very deadly activity that some are engaged in. I think we need to explicitly tie any discussion 
of cultural diversity today to the biological, the ecological diversity that gave rise to those unique personalities, those unique cultures on the planet. Secondly, if we do that, then we can situate all of our discussions again into a whole new, we can liberate ourselves because guess what? It's no longer all about us. We live as if we are in a room full of mirrors and all we look at is ourselves and the things that we have made. We must situate education, we must situate politics, we must situate economics, we must situate morality into an environment that is a symbiotic interaction between cultures and the natural world, between peoples and place. The third principle, I would argue, the thing that we must do is argue that we are all involved in a nature-culture nexus. We are all engaged in a sort of symbiotic relationship with the balance of other-than-human life on this planet. The fact, by the way, that we don't see that today tells us much about what we need to change. We have, in essence, and to some extent, insulated ourselves into ignorance. The reason that it's hard to explain to people in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Detroit, New York City, Dallas, Texas, climate change and what it means is because they've never experienced it. It's kind of hard to experience anything when you run from your centrally air-conditioned and heated buildings to your air-conditioned heated cars. It's just a box with four wheels. And we spend so much time literally segregated from the balance of this other than human nature that we're a part of, that we've become very ignorant of what it can teach us. We have to make that connection real again in our everyday lives and in our institutions. So the fourth, the third principle was this nature-culture nexus. Now, if we can do that, and I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be very honest here. This is heavy lifting. We were just having a, a discussion here before we convened this session here just a second ago. Some of us who were involved in the first North American convening of the rights of Mother Earth at Haskell Indian Nations University last April. And uh, by the way, it was a very quick startup, so I, I want to apologize to any of you who, who didn't get the word about this convening. I know many of you would have loved to join us. We kind of felt some pressure to, to just pull it together, make it happen. And we, and we did, very quickly. And we started discussion about four months earlier and about two months earlier, we were pretty sure it was going to happen, and about a month before we convened the first week in April, I for one was saying, we're not ready, we got to hold this off, and you know who told me not to? My student interns who said, Dr. Wildcat, we can do this. <laughs> yes. You want to see hope? 
look in the eyes of your children. If you don't see hope there, then you, we've got a very serious problem. If we can do this, if we can situate our daily lives, the institutions we move through, if we can move them out of this sort of, uh, this, this institutionalized, isolated ignorance about the balance of life on the planet, move ourselves out of this, these sort of rooms full of mirrors that we live within, then we can do what Greg Cajete calls, we can situate our life on this planet in a moral and spiritual ecology. I like that. A moral and spiritual ecology. The greatest challenge we have, and this is the discussion we were having right before we, we uh, I got up here to speak, is my gosh, how are we going to do that in the existing institutions that we're bound up in? And um, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be heavy lifting. And um, I don't know, some, da some days I wonder if, if we can even talk about rights of Mother Earth and the kind of legal rational constructions of law that we have that dominate the landscape of modern nation states and the global economy today. I don't know if we can work within those systems, but we can begin to build other systems that model a natural law within a moral and spiritual ecology of life on this planet. One that we're just one small part of and one where we need to assume a, a position of humility. So the fourth thing is let's talk about a moral and spiritual ecology. We have to. We have to engage in that discussion. Now here's the good news. The good news is if you, if you think about what I just said, about how difficult this work is going to be, there is plenty of work for everyone. <laughs> we got a lot of job openings, a lot, and they're unfilled. Think of this, law, economics and environment, education, politics, science, psychology. Oh man, we haven't even started to make the contributions that indigenous people can make in rethinking psychology and ecological psychology. Man, I want to read that book. I want to read that book. I want one of these young people to write that book. The knowledge is there. Pay attention. Listen. There's a lot of work to do. We're not going to leave anyone out. Teachers, psychologists, entrepreneurs. I'm all in favor of entrepreneurship. I want to see some real entrepreneurship. And I want to see some real, you know, maybe what we, maybe we'll move from sort of a economic bottom line of thinking about 
profit and 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 you know economic gain remember let's switch back now to that moral and spiritual ecology how about in the place of progress which seems to have got us where we're at today this constant headlong rush for progress let's adopt for something more modest why don't we try to enact systems of life enhancement that's what I think our elders have given us hope for. So five, let's get to work. Roll up your sleeves. There's a lot of hard work we have to do. And number six, if we, if we can just rid ourselves of that anthropocentric, technologically benchmarked notion of progress, we do have the opportunity to not, as Doug Herman said, my friend at, at the Smithsonian, I was just invited two weeks ago to join a bunch of all these super heavy hitter types, and I think I just snuck in through the back door. I don't know uh, how I got invited, but uh, I was listening to the discussion about what does it mean to live in the age of the Anthropocene? And I kept thinking, you know, well, one of the things it means is you guys got to quit thinking we're going to fix it. No, I, we're not. As hubris ridden as the title of my book sounds, Saving the Earth with Indigenous Knowledge, what I want to, you to understand that the indigenous knowledges that I've been introduced to, whether they come from our brothers and sisters on the islands, whether they come from our brothers and sisters in the Arctic, whether they come from our brothers, brothers and sisters in the Amazon, that those constructions of, of, of knowledge are not anthropocentric. They are kin-centric constructions of knowledge because I believe if I can sit out there long enough, those crows, the trees, and the wind can teach me something about how to be a better human being. I don't call that romanticism, I call that indigenous realism. Number, si number seven, my last point. Let's go back to where we began, that, that spiritual foundation. Let's construct, let's resituate our lives very consciously in a nature-culture nexus, a symbiotic relationship. And when we do that, we begin to recognize that the gift of life, the breath of life that we have been given is one that, if we pay attention, shows us that we are surrounded by diversity. We will need to employ technology. Our ancestors employed technology but they never made the mistake of thinking that technology was something that could operate autonomously from the balance of nature. It seems today that the problem we have is everyone wants the one-size-fits-all solution, whether it be for democracy, 
whether it be for technology, whether it be for the environment. And I'm going to suggest to you the beauty of this Mother Earth is that she teaches you there are many technologies. There are many forms of democracy. The surface of this Mother Earth, this very thin biosphere that we inhabit, is the embodiment of diversity. To the extent that we see the world increasingly homogenized by a globalization, facilitated by media as much today as anything, and a marketplace, the biggest battle we have is fighting this homogenization that's trying to be laid on the whole planet. One size fits all the best practice. See, let's find the best practice. There isn't one best practice, just like there isn't one best culture. If our life on the planet has taught us anything, is that we have many beautiful cultures on this planet, and this planet has for most of our life on it been a history of beautiful diversity. That is being threatened today. We talk a lot about the biological diversity, threats to biological diversity. We talk a lot about the cultural diversity of the planet. And as I said earlier, we can no longer afford to have either one of those discussions independent of the other. We must connect those. And if we do that, the point seven is we will reject because our mother, the earth, cannot afford a one-size-fits-all solution to climate change or to the environmental issues we now face on this beautiful mother earth. And I was in a discussion with a course I teach at Haskell called Native and, and um, Western Views of Nature. And we kept going around and we kept talking about, well, you know, so what ties us together? What ties us together? And I know in some forms of logic, this would make no sense. But when this student said it, everyone in the class went, you're right. That's where we begin. And the student remarked, I think I know what we're talking about. We're all the same. We're different. Thank you very much. <laughs>